I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series called Being with God. And just to give you a heads up, next week we're going to start a series, Lord willing, on the book of Nehemiah. Now, the book of Nehemiah is one of the first books of the Bible I studied over four decades ago. And the principles that I learned from that book are just as relevant today. Incredible manual on leadership and how to go about applying it to our lives today. So I hope you'll join us for that. We're coming up on the end of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And today we're going to have one more opportunity to gather with the young adults. They'll be leading it at 3 p.m. in the sanctuary. And so we want to encourage you, if you haven't already, go to mccleanbible.org backslash stories and let us know what you've learned during 21 days of prayer. It could be something significant, or it could be something that just you felt like God correcting you or guiding you, etc. And so please uh, let us know, because what we've learned over time is these stories encourage other believers. And so rather than keeping to yourself what God's doing in your own life, maybe share it with others. And you can be as uh, descriptive as you like. So naturally, we're not stopping our time in the Word and prayer. Rather, we are hoping and desiring that these 21 days would jumpstart you to really develop a passion for the Word of God in prayer and to see the importance of fasting in your own spiritual walk with the Lord. Now, here at the Prince William location, location starting this upcoming Wednesday, every first Wednesday going forward, we're going to have something called Potluck at 6.30 upstairs. It's time to bring back Potluck. And so I've told my church group, like, we're getting ready. We're going back old school. And then 7.30 to 9, we'll have our local prayer and worship gathering downstairs. And so... I pray that you'll carve out time for the first Wednesday of each month to spend with other followers of Christ. It's my desire and the other staff's desire to foster opportunities for you to grow in fellowship and understanding of the word and prayer. And so this is just one way we can go about living out uh, life as a community in Christ and specifically falling back to the New Year's message on being a church that's battle ready. One of the things we need to do is constantly reinforce each other with the word and with prayer. Now, as I think about community, I can't help but think about the community I came from. And so I have a print of a pretty famous painting for spec ops people in my office. And for me, it reminds me not only of almost the past three decades of what I got to do overseas and train with some phenomenal warriors, but also reminds me about the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, and how we all have a part to play, and one person's not more significant than the other. It also reminds me of the spiritual warfare at hand, and that we actually have a real enemy, and his name is Satan, and we need to be battle-ready because I guarantee you he is. And the only way we can fight him, especially when you fall back to what we learned on New Year's Eve, is with the armor of God. So you can review that message, uh, Ephesians 6. But as I think about community, I also think about a cost. You see, sometimes uh, when you're in a spec, op, spec ops community, uh, the cost may be time and really just a little bit of effort because you have to stay late. You got to help one of the new guys uh, perform better. But there's a high expectation in any of the special operations community that every warrior is going to put in the time to be the very best operator he can be when you go downrange. And so that means a lot of bleeding in peacetime, and preferably uh, it just equals to a lot of sweat, a sweat you know, in the actual war setting. And so to me, I think it's very important you know, to honor your teammates and to show up ready. But think about the church. 
you know, this cost in the spec ops world, sometimes, like, I'll always have a limp because I rescued one of my buddies one time, and I have a hole in my patella. And so for me, I always remember that fellow when it gets cold. I'm like, oh, it's a little cranky, you know? And, and so I remember, so that was like a small cost, right? But then there's other people that lived out John 15, 13, where they gave their life to save a teammate. I can think of one operation and Just Cause, the very first night where I lost four teammates and many others were wounded. And one of those guys went out to save one of his guys and he was killed in the process and he left behind a wife who was eight months pregnant, their first child. So as a very brand new guy in the 80s, I realized there's a cost if you want to be in this community. There also is a cost if you want to be in the community of Christ. And I'm trying to emphasize that when we do membership classes, when we do membership interviews. I have a high expectation that every member, every follower of Christ is going to contribute. And not just warm a chair on Sunday, but to actually be part of the body of Christ. And so today's message is called Community in Christ, and our text is Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Let's listen to the Word of God now. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, as we gather today to explore your word, we ask for your spirit to guide us, open our hearts to the lessons of the early church and acts so that we might learn how to live in true biblical community, connected, caring, and celebration. Help us to embrace these principles, not just as ideals, but as a living reality in our lives, our families, and our church. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen, church. So anytime you dive into a book, it's kind of nice to have at least some context on what's going on. So let's look at what's taking place first, and then we'll get caught up to our actual text. So first, Jesus shares his parting words in Acts 1.8. Look at what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. From there, the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people in Acts 2, 1 through 13. You see them preaching boldly in multiple language, languages, and this attracted a lot of attention. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. And even when the apostles were arrested and threatened, they still proclaimed how much they loved the Lord Jesus. If that's difficult for you, think about romance. I met my wife all those years ago in the university, and as a teenager, I didn't need anyone to teach me about telling people that I was smitten about this little girl. I loved her. And apparently, people tell me today, I still am announcing loud and clear to the world that I love this girl of 38 plus years, right? And so I love her, and I want the world to know that I love her. Think about what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you're a follower of him today, think of where he's rescued you from. Why would you not tell the world what he's done? Something to challenge you by. And certainly, I know this, when you love somebody, it should show. Not just here, but you should actually express it with word and deed. Now, what happened to cause these disciples to be so bold? 
I can think of two reasons that are observable. One, there was a new presence, and two, there was a new power. A new presence and a new power. The apostles thought that Jesus was dead, and they were scared, and they were in hiding. But something changed. They saw Jesus alive, and his presence impacted the rest of their life. Church history tells us that all but John died for their faith in Christ. Of course, John was exiled, and that's where he perished. And so we know something happened to these men who were in hiding, and it made them become so very bold. But they also received a new power, the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus told them he had to go away for the Holy Spirit to come in John 16, 7. And then in John, t- John 14, 26, he said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And this is actually taking place right now. God was good to his word, and Peter and the other disciples were able to recall what Jesus had taught them. Remember, they would have been expounding upon the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But as they remember, they start to record all the things that Jesus taught them, and that's where the New Testament comes from. And think about this. At the end of Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people become followers of Christ. That's a lot of new babies, isn't it? Now, we've been blessed as a congregation to have some new babies here. And shout out to new moms and dads, those of us that remember, new babies, they're beautiful, and they bring a lot of pleasure. But if we're to be honest, they can also bring a lot of pain, right? A baby causes pain. I mean, they wake up all the time, they need to be fed, they need to be changed. Do I burp this crying baby? Do I give it a pacifier? Do I feed it? Or is it just want to be held because it's already training me as dad, right? And so babies know how to manipulate you from a very early age. And as much as they're joyous, they're also a lot of trouble. Now think about the early church. 3,000 new babies. That's a lot of people to teach and instruct from God's word. And yet the disciples were up to the task. That's exactly what they did. So I want you to look at our first point now, and it's called Connection in Christ. In each point, we're just going to look at two verses per point. We're going to keep this real simple. But look at these two verses again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now this week, we spent our entire prayer gathering camped out just on Acts 2.42, We spent a wonderful time praising God for these four pillars that we're going to discuss. We praise God for his word, and we praise God for fellowship. We praise God uh, for really just the, the wonderful beauty of breaking bread and remembering our Lord with communion or the Lord's Supper. And then we also praise God that we actually get to pray and communicate with him, the creator of the universe, because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, please know that each of these four pillars could be a message on their own. So much to be covered in God's Word. So I'm going to just skim some information for you today. But some scholars call these four pillars normative experiences, meaning what took place back then could certainly take place today. So remember that as we talk about it. But when you think about these signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles, that's what they would call unique experiences. So there were some unique experiences that took place back then. And remember that an apostle was someone that had to be present throughout all of Jesus' teaching. And it goes all the way back to when Jesus, or when John did the baptism. All right, so it goes all the way back then. And we learned this from Acts 1, 
21 through 22. So we actually see the criteria, because remember, they had to replace Judas. So as they're drawing lots, the criteria was exactly what I just listed. So it wasn't just anybody. It had to be someone who witnessed all of Jesus' teaching. So I think that's important. And these unique experiences that the, work, the Lord worked through the apostles could have left the early believers desiring for more of those wonderful experiences, right? Think about Acts 3, just in the next chapter, where Peter and John, they tell the, you know, the, the beggar who's been lame for over 40 years, he's basically like, I need money. And they're like, hey, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And Junior didn't just stand up and walk, right? He was jumping and leaping. He was fully restored. That's what our Lord Jesus can do, right? He doesn't just barely get you cleaned up and send you on your way. He will fully restore and change your life. And that's a promise from God's Word. Now, of note, you don't find the early believers lamenting about the past and all those wonderful signs. Rather than pondering over the past, we find them pursuing the Word of God in the present. So with that, Look at our first pillar, and that is devoted to the Word. Colossians 3, 16, 17 reminds us, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 1 Peter 2, 2 goes on, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It is my prayer that each of us would have a desire for God's word, a hunger for it, and that we would consume it often so that it would change our very lives. Now, I also want to encourage you to be people who mark up your Bibles. Mark them up in such a way where you got to give them away every couple years. You're just working them over. January, I got a new one, and I'm you know, it's almost too shiny to be preaching from, right? But it's like, I'm going to wear this thing out because I want to spend time in it, right? And I don't want to spend time on it just for head knowledge. I want it to transform my heart. And I know I need to be on my knees every day begging God to do just that. Because at the end of the day, I know I'm just a man. And if left to my own devices, my goodness, I would be a total train wreck. I need the Word of God to shape me and guide me each and every moment. Also think about the legacy you can leave. I have my grandparents' Bibles, and I love having those in my den at home, but they're of that generation where they didn't mark a thing, so I don't even know what their favorite verses are. I don't know what they thought when they read Colossians 3, 16 through 17, but you have the opportunity to do that for the next generation. You could mark up your Bible. You could journal on paper. You could use that thing called a laptop and actually make a Word document or a Google document. I lost a couple years because I didn't back up my stuff on my desktop, so I'm a you know, Google Docs guy now. But the bottom line is, I want to leave a legacy to my children and grandchildren from the Word of God and how it's influenced and changed my life. And I would hope you would desire to do the same. The second pillar is fellowship. As mentioned with the children earlier, this is the first time this word is used. And it means common, the root. The coin is a common word. So common Greek was the universal language. It's the language that most of the New Testament was written in. And so very common and understood by all who are present. We'll discuss it further in our second point, but know this type of fellowship, as we illustrated for the children, is costly. True fellowship is costly, but it's worth it, and it produces something really sweet. Third pillar, devoted to the breaking of bread. 
Now, most scholars would agree that this is a mention to the Lord's Supper. Because of the context, it's mentioned with three other topics about worship in verse 42. And then when you look at verse 46, it's broke out from receiving regular food and during meals. So with that aside, what we do see is that they observed it often and they observed it together. Now, during the 21 days of prayer, just like I'm asking you all to share stories, one of the things that God impressed upon me as I studied and spent time in prayer was we need to slow down observing the Lord's Supper. Now, it's something we observe every Sunday, and I take it as a very special moment. But sometimes when we only have a few minutes till the next service, it can feel a little compressed. And so today, we're going to carve out a little more time, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to remember what our Lord Jesus did for us. That's something I felt God counseled me on during the 21 days of prayer, that we want to make sure this is a very worshipful moment where we remember our Lord Jesus. The fourth and final pillar is devoted to the prayers. Acts 12.5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, by the church, or to God, by the church. Don't you desire to be a part of a church where people would beg God on your behalf? I do. I remember a couple years ago when I was preaching at Tyson's, and I shared about our little Riley, who was three at the time, and that she was diagnosed with leukemia. It gutted us as a family. It was so hard. But I'll never forget an email I got from Elder Wayne at the time. He said, Brother Todd, I will give God no rest on behalf of Riley. I will pray for your granddaughter all the time. I can't explain what that did to my heart. To know there's a man who's going to be faithful and beseech God on our behalf for little Riley. Today, She's five, she's sassy, 140 chemo treatments later, but we love that little girl, and we can't wait to hopefully this September ring that bell in that hospital and her to be cancer-free. But we have a privilege to intercede on behalf of others, and we can pray. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. Acts 13, verses 2 through 3 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's good to know that you can call upon brothers and sisters, not only to pray for you, but they're willing to give up food, time, and treasure to help you on your journey. Are you seeing a theme yet in the early church that they did life together, that it was messy, just like those grapes, but that it was sweet and it was so worth it? My prayer is that we'll model this kind of community in Christ. And be clear, it's not a call for just a pastor. It's a call for every follower of Jesus, every one of you. I need you to step up and serve our Lord. Now, men, we have church groups, we have community groups, we have men's functions. But one of the things I ask you to seriously consider is making sure you have a battle buddy. We, talk, we talked about this during New Year's Eve, about having someone to disciple you. It's so important uh, to be involved in biblical community. And just know, I'm not asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Pastor Joe Henrique, who used to lead the Tyson's location, uh, is a retired pastor now. And yesterday, he was over at my home, and we spent the whole morning together. Time in the Word, time in prayer, time of fellowship. And it was so good for me, and I'm so thankful to have an 
a seasoned saint who's actually writing a book on elderhood, uh, and he's teaching me as I'm learning from him, man, there are so many books about childhood and adulthood, but what about us elders? And I'll let you determine what that elderhood means as far as that specific age. But he's right. Like, we need the seasoned saints to step up and know from this pastor, I desire senior saints to serve in every capacity. You have so much to give the church, and we need you. We need the little ones to see you. We need the adults to see you serving, to see what it's like to see someone faithfully serving throughout their years. Ladies, same thing. I'm so encouraged by women that have been writing me and saying, guess what? I got a battle, buddy. Some of them are asking, all right, what's the next step? But the point is they've connected with another woman, someone to pour into them. And it's so key, just like men, the ladies need another woman to pour into them and to really watch out for those blind spots because they're called blind spots for a reason, right? There's areas in our life we don't see unless we have someone take a deep look at us. And then think about the children that you're responsible for. Whether it's parenting, grandparenting, we have opportunities to partner with you. Now, make no mistake, when I was leading youth ministry, one of the first things I did when I met with parents is to remind them they had the lion's share. Like 95% of parenting is on you as mom and dad, right? But the church should partner with you. We do want to help your children know the Word of God. So we have Kids Quest, we have Awana, we have The Rock, we have all these wonderful programs in Access where every child is going to hear about the Word of God. So please use these to your advantage. Now these four pillars, the Word, Fellowship, Breaking Bread, or the Lord's Supper, and Prayer are crucial for any healthy church. If you know a little bit about my past, you also know I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to science and plants. I had a grandfather who was a bivocational pastor, and we would get up and do trap routes at 3 a.m., and then he would teach me how to make medicine from plants. And as a little boy, I didn't think it was cool at all. And then I was that nerd in the SEAL teams. I was like, hey, like, look over there. That's chocolate lily, and it's got a rice cake for a root. And they're all like, you know, they're snoring. They're like, not impressed. But I was like the only guy that could find carbs in the winter. So, you know, I didn't perish, right? But the point is, Plants are really cool, and they're really powerful, and they also can teach us some wonderful lessons. Consider this $5 word, mycorrhiza. Mycorrhiza is this symbiotic relationship with fungus and with trees and plants. And so they work together in a special way, and it's all underground, and this natural network allows them to communicate together, to share nutrients, and to support each other's growth. Pretty interesting. Think about that. Can you think of anything else that could maybe be like my Carissa? How about the church? How about our connection in Christ? Shared faith creating a spiritual network where we support, strengthen, and nurture each other in our faith journey as well. So that's just one visual. Now think about our second point. This is the care in community, verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Do you realize that fellowship with God and biblical fellowship go together? They actually do. Now, I've heard some suggest that the stronger your vertical relationship is with the Lord, the more your horizontal relationships are going to be strengthened as well. In Boyce's excellent commentary on Acts, he said this, if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians. You will say, I don't really like to be with other Christians very much. They all seem to be hypocrites. You ever heard that? 
I'd go to church, but they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Friends, this statement is spot on. I've seen many people drift away from the Lord in my time. But there's good news. This problem works in reverse. You see, for those who spend time in the Word, for those who spend time in prayer, you're going to actually cultivate a desire to be with God's people. You're going to worship together. You're going to desire to see each other more than once a week. You're going to hang out. I love the fact that our last prayer gathering, I think we had what they called an afterglow. People were hanging out till midnight, still talking. I was like, I'd really like to go home. But I also love the fact that people were hanging out and doing life together. And that is more important than sleep in most cases, right? And so it's a beautiful thing. We all know also... I was thinking about this just driving in. January, we get flooded with all the new diets, the new exercises, free gym memberships and all these other things. And we know the maxims, right? We know we're supposed to eat right and exercise. But it's also a choice, isn't it? Some of us, it's not just a daily choice. It's a moment-by-moment choice, right? Like occasionally I work from home, and I find myself like, being tempted to snack more when I'm at home and not busy and running around and everything because there's so much access to all this food. But I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that it'd be real handy to go for a walk every once in a while, right? You know, if I want to stay fit, I know I should probably eat, you know, a piece of fruit instead of a whole pizza. Like there's all these things I know, but do I do them? You see how this crosses over in our spiritual walk, right? We know what we're supposed to do, church, but do we do them? It's a choice. It's a choice you got to make every day, sometimes moment by moment. Now, one of the things that you can do, and I've seen this happen, is that physically a lot of times people will get a coach, right? They'll get someone to help them. They'll look at their nutrition. They'll set up an exercise plan, and then they'll hold them accountable, right? Well, spiritually, we can do the same thing too. Sometimes we need help. If you find yourself in a rut and you just keep hitting your head up against the wall, it's one more reason I encourage you to have that battle buddy, to have that other believer examine what you're doing, and maybe they can show you some areas to improve upon. And then they can hold you accountable, like, how you doing? Let's discuss the Bible reading plan tonight when we get together. Then you know, well, I guess I better read the Bible, right? Because we're going to talk about it. And so it's nice to have that accountability person, just like it's nice to know you're going to meet a brother in the gym and like, all right, I know he's going to be there at five, so let's get it on, right? And so it's nice to have someone to encourage you and your walk. One of the things we provide for you at McLean Bible Church is a ministry called Stephen Ministry. Pete and Pam happen to be sitting in the back, and so I'll make them real busy after church. But the key thing about Stephen Ministry is these are men and women that have been trained, trained as lay leaders in counseling to care for you. It's totally anonymous. You sign up or confidential, and so you send your information in they find you a man if you're a man, and if you're a lady, they find you a lady, someone to walk with you. And it could be for a month, it could be for a year, it's however long you need. But it's such a beautiful ministry to be cared for and to be known. And ladies, it's great when you have another lady that you can text at 10 o'clock, because, you know, if you're texting me, I'm already asleep and my phone's on silent, right? And so it's nice to have a battle buddy, someone who will care for you. So please consider going to resources and look at care and apply for a Stephen minister if you need somebody to do a deep walk with you in your own life. One more thing on fellowship. If you haven't watched the fellowship 
message under the 12 traits that David preached all those years ago. It's worth reviewing. All those 12 biblical traits are wonderful, and they'll be good for your soul. Another thing to point about care and community is that believers gave at a place of gratefulness. Unlike communism, which some people will try to extract from this passage, which is mandatory fun, you'll give because we'll make you, they were giving out of the abundance of their heart. They were giving joyfully. And to be clear, verse 46 shows us they didn't give everything away because they were meeting in people's homes, right? So each person gave on how the Lord led them. And the early church gave out of a compulsion to worship as well. They had a deep understanding of what God had done for them, and they wanted to express this love by following his commands. What a beautiful expression to live out the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor like yourself. A beautiful example. Now, I know we don't have time to read all the one another's, but let me just share a short list of the 59 that are in the New Testament to let you know how important it is to do life together. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another, John 13. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, Romans 12. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12, 10 again. Instruct one another, Romans 15, 14. The members would have the same concern for each other, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Serve one another through love, Galatians 5. Carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6. With patience, bearing with one another in love, Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4. Always pursue what is good for one another, 1 Thessalonians 5. And then finally, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. If you'd like to know more about this topic from a life of a believer, I would highly encourage you to read Life Together by Bonhoeffer. It's a wonderful book about a man who gave his very life for the gospel. In his book, he says, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Friends, I have traveled all around the world, and there are men and women who are followers of Christ that would give anything to experience what you get to do here today. They are alone, and they are surrounded, and they need our prayers. One thing you could do to support people like that is look at your Joshua Project app, pray for these unreached people groups. There are men and women around the world that are such a small percent of believers in their homeland, and they desperately need our prayers. I pray when we think about this topic of grace and the privilege to gather in a community like this that we'll never get over it. And I was taught grace as a little boy means God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of what Jesus has done, we have this privilege to gather together. It's a big deal. And as pastors and ministry leaders from every location, we landed on several years ago the importance of biblical community, something outside of Sunday, because we had many people that did not feel cared for or known. And so church groups is this vehicle where you can experience true biblical fellowship. Now, ideally, in a church group, you're going to be cared for, you're going to grow to be more like Jesus, and you're going to learn how to make disciples. We have a QR code we're going to put on the screen. Feel free to scan it if you'd like to see where some church groups are near uh, where you reside. And you can take a look at it and see if it matches your schedule. But we want you to get involved in a church group. Now, full disclosure, like your church, your church group will not be perfect. And thank the Lord it isn't, because if it was, none of us would be allowed to join, right? And don't worry about being awkward. Join a church group. It won't take long, and you'll quickly realize that everybody present is just as messed up as you. 
I find great comfort in that. And matter of fact, the group that I've been leading for years calls themselves the Misfits. And I think that's a fitting name for every follower of Christ. Because to be honest, we shouldn't fit in, right? We're going to stand out if we're following the Lord. And of course, you know, I like picking on my young adults because, you know, it's, it's been like a year since I quoted Petra, one of my go-to bands when I was a kid. And so one of my favorite songs is Fool's Gold. Listen to the chorus. It says, some may call me foolish and some may call me odd, but I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. So let's be misfits and let's represent our Lord well. Now, as you get involved with a church group, it also should lend itself to help you find a battle buddy. As you spend time with men, fellas, maybe you'll find someone that you sync up with and you're like, you know what? I sure would appreciate it if you'd be my battle buddy. I need help. And that's as simple introduction as you need. And then you'll figure it out along the way. There's something really wonderful about being fully transparent and fully known. It's something that I, I don't know how to explain unless you actually experience it. But it's wonderful, just like that end of the breach painting that we started with, to know someone is watching your back and they're caring for you. Uh, that's a big deal. I remember years ago being invited when I was leading student ministry to speak to a bunch of businessmen before they went to work at 6 a.m. on a Wednesday. And so there's about 100 men present, and I felt led to preach on the Great Suggestion, meaning the Great Commission. But as I was studying, uh, I read some interesting stats, and I thought maybe a little bit hyperbole, but I shared it anyway, and I said, I quoted, 95% of professing believers, this is men and women of all ages, 95% have not told one person about Jesus Christ. I was like, wow, that's a lot. And again, I thought it was maybe a stretch until I listened to over 100 men in their table discussion give excuses on why they don't tell people about Jesus. These are men that got up to be at a Bible study that started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And they don't tell people about Jesus. Now, every Sunday, we recite something called the Great Commission. And in it, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Uh, the Great Commission means marching orders, right? Like this is the creator of the universe. He tells us to make disciples. And the question is, are you? Because if you're not, you should be. Take a look at this picture of uh, some mountain climbers. I've had the privilege to climb a lot of mountains around the world with some very talented individuals. And thankfully, they were on my team to keep me out of trouble. But you'll see them tethered together as they ascend a steep peak. And each climber's safety and success depends not only on their own skill, but the vigilance and support of the people in their rope team. And if one stumbles, the others are there to support them. And it behooves each climber to be as professional as possible, because if I stumble, I could actually cause someone else to die and perish with me. And so we work together, right? I should care if you stumble, because it's going to impact me. And you should care if I stumble, because if I stumble, it'll impact you. And so we work together, right? And it's so important. And this image mirrors what the community in Christ should look like, supporting one another through life's challenging climbs and ensuring no one is left behind. Now, years ago, I had the privilege to go down to Aburu, Kenya, where we were supporting a pastor and his wife, Steve and Mary. She was an RN in Aburu, Kenya. It was a very remote village in the Rift Valley. And I remember that morning, it was pouring down rain in the 50s, not what you quite picture for Africa, but it was a little chilly. But I was studying in 1 Kings, 
And it was the passage where you learn about God is the God of the mountains and the valleys. And later that day, we drove to church, and Pastor Steve, once we dove down this valley and we saw that little church down there and the mountains all around it, he said, what are you preaching on today? I was like, I didn't know it was preaching. He goes, well, of course, you came all this way. We're going to have you preach. And so with one minute preparation, I thought back to what I studied that morning, and I thought, what a beautiful object lesson. Like the mountains and valleys surround this church. And so as I was preaching from 1 Kings, I was reminding them that mountaintop experiences are wonderful. For those of you that have been on top, you know the views sometimes are wonderful. Sometimes there's no view at all because it's socked in and it's horrible weather. But what I've learned is very little grows on top of a mountain. It's a beautiful view, but nothing grows up there. All the growth takes place in the valley. Some of you might be in a season where it's a valley. It's hard, but I want to remind you it's also a season of growth. And I also want to remind you something that I've learned years ago, and I love that we're becoming a church that's more faithful in this, and that's this. When we share our joys, they're multiplied. And when we share our sorrows, they're divided. I long for us to be a church that will share our sorrows so that fellow believers can take that weight but it's also a church where we can share our joys and we can celebrate things together and magnify what the Lord has done. I desire that we do both, and I think it's biblical. Brings us to our last point, celebration and communion, 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Are you able to picture the scene? With joy, they're worshiping at the temple. And then they go to individual homes, and it appears that they're just overflowing with gratitude. The temple courts most likely refer to the Gentile courts, which during feast times could hold up to 200,000 people. So don't think just a little football field. Think gigantic court that could hold 200,000 people. And notice that when possible, these believers gathered in person. Whether it's in a large setting like the temple or in the homes, they were present. But I know that there are some dear saints listening today that are shut in for various health reasons. And so no, we pray for your endurance and that we miss you and we're thankful for your prayers for us, but that we care deeply about you. And so know that we have men and women that can't be here in presence or in person, and it would mean everything for them to be here. So let's not neglect and take for granted the joy we have to gather and encourage one another. This picture of the early saints reminds me of the words in Jesus in the upper room in John 13. He said in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Early believers took God's word very seriously. I found a historical note from a man named Artistides, who spoke about Christians in A.D. 125. Look, about, look how the church represented themselves in A.D. 125. This is from this outsider looking in. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, fellow believers, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, 
all of them anxiously minister to his necessity, and if possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. That was the early church. They cared enough that they would set aside and not eat for two or three days so that they could give that food to their brother and sister who had none. True fellowship costs something, doesn't it? No wonder the church was winning people day by day with extravagant love like that. And the believers that we meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for services as usual. They met daily in Acts 2.46, we read, and they cared daily, Acts 6.1. They won souls daily, Acts 2.47. They searched the scriptures daily, Acts 17.11, and increased in number daily, Acts 16.5. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a once-a-week routine. Why? Because the risen Christ was a living reality to them. And his resurrection power was at work in each and every one of their lives through the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul models this type of love in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Many of us, I pray, will have an overflow of such love of what God has done for us, that our lives would sound like a symphony to a lost world around us as we give praise to our almighty God. Now, I have a picture up here of an orchestra. And again, it's another illustration of what the church can look like. Think of a symphony orchestra. The instruments vary, they come together, and the harmony and the beauty that they make together is simply wonderful. And each instrument plays a unique part, but it's the collective effort of them working together that truly makes the music and the song a masterpiece. Now, years ago, when I was in grade school, I uh, desired to be a world-famous saxophone player. And I was so good that my mom created a special studio, studio for me in a camper outside on top of the truck. Now, I thought it was a special studio and not because of my ability, but in the summertime when it was well over 100, I thought maybe it was because my saxophone playing wasn't very good. But I tried, and it was definitely a joyful noise. And at some point, I learned Aloha Way, and then I quit. But the point is, we are all called to fulfill a role in the body of Christ, and we want to be faithful to that role that he's called us out to be. Now, Think about the church working together like a symphony, all those instruments. If every one of you played your role that God has given you. And let me even go a little bit further, something I learned from Francis Chan in his book called Crazy Love. I remember reading it behind some sandbags in Afghanistan. It was like being punched in the face by your best friend. It was an ouchy type of book, right? But in it, he said something profound. He said, every believer is in an epic movie about God for 0.3 seconds in the background walking on a sidewalk. My takeaway, Todd, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about God. One of the greatest gifts I could give you today is to remind you that the Bible is for you, but it's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus. It's about redemption. It's about hope. And so for every follower of Christ today, I have a challenge for you. It's called Mission 3. If you grab the handouts that were uh, posted in the back there, 
uh, it's helpful. But mission three, believe it or not, uh, requires three things. And so the first one is pray that God would give you three names of people that do not know him. Three names from three areas. These three areas, you can start with family, friends, and then just to make it easy, fun. Any place you recreate. Do you know three people in those areas? And then three acts. Prayer, care, and share. Do you care about that name enough to talk to God about them before you talk to them about God? Pray. And then care for them. Ask God for guidance. Maybe it's a neighbor and you don't even know their name yet. Maybe you need to make some cookies. Or if you don't got baking skills, go get some of them hard cookies that break teeth in the grocery store and walk those over. That'll show how much you love them. But the bottom line is, like, show up and care for them. Maybe it's mowing a neighbor's lawn when you obviously recognize they can't do it. Bottom line, show them care. And then finally, share. Tell them about the Lord Jesus. The gospel needs to be explained to somebody for them to be saved. So tell them the whole gospel truth. Last thing I want to share with you is uh, one of the very first rescue missions I ever got recalled on. Uh, you'll see this ancient device for you younger people I'm wearing on my hip. It was called a beeper. Now, a beeper, back in the day, we thought we were pretty cool until they actually started using them. It meant you had to go to work. But I remember the first time that I got like the real beep and like I was off to do something. And so we gathered in the ready room and the boss comes out and he's like, we got a rescue mission, boys. I was like, all right, that's what I came into this organization for. And he goes, and his name is Rascal, Rascal the Dolphin. I was like, what? We're going to go save a dolphin? And you know what we had to save the dolphin from? The ocean. Because it was cold. And all the civilians were worried about Rascal the Dolphin. They were lamenting. They had t-shirts printed, save Rascal the Dolphin. So we partnered with SeaWorld, and SeaWorld had a great plan because they're dolphin experts. We're going to put a net around Rascal and pull him into the boat. But we need some surface swimmers. No big deal, except that the water was about 33. And they didn't want us to have an air source because that might confuse the dolphins. So just to swim in three-knot currents, for you swimmers, you realize that's a lot of treading water and against a very strong current. And so that's what we did. So I slipped into the water, and I did my part. I got a pretty good wingspan, so I'm moving around. And then the experts told us they'll see you and think it's a pillar, and they won't charge the net. Famous last words, right? And so I'm spread out, and we see the net coming in, and then the next thing you know, Rascal panics and charges me and wraps my whole body up in that net and then drags me to the bottom of the ocean. How do I know it's the bottom? Because my ears ruptured. And then I had vertigo. And I got an okay breath, but at 33 degrees, it's a bit challenging to hold your breath for a while. Eventually, I popped up. Now, you would think a big, bad, macho Navy SEAL would just be like, hey, fellas, I need a little help. That's not what I sounded like when I surfaced. I screamed that I needed help. And I saw my buddy, and he started swimming towards me, and then I was pulled back under. And because I was screaming help, I got about a fourth of a breath. That was a little more challenging this time, and I was contemplating life. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be killed by a dolphin. <laughs> now, I did imagine sharks possibly getting me at one point in my career, but not a dolphin, those cute, cuddly creatures. And to describe the situation, just so you feel my agony, imagine I tie you to the back of my Ford pickup truck then stop me from driving away. That's what it's like stopping a dolphin that you're wrapped up in a net with in the ocean. You're not stopping the dolphin. Now, my knife was on my leg, genius move, and I could not get to it because I was wrapped up in this net. 
Third time popped, buddy came over, he was able to get a hold of me and cut me out. And he saved me. Here's the point of the story. I had a lot of training and a lot of ability, and I thought it was good to go in the water. If anybody should be able to handle a dolphin in the water, it would be a trained Navy SEAL, right? But you know what I found? I couldn't save myself. And I was going to drown without help. I was going to die. My question is, are you here today thinking you can save yourself? Whether it's through good deeds, through your generosity, through your job, through your looks, through your physical performance? What are you going to count on on that day when death knocks on your door and starts to drag you to hell? Are you going to count on your good works? I wouldn't bet on the best five minutes I've ever lived to save me. You know what I would count on? Jesus Christ. I am saved and bought by the blood of my Savior. That's what saves me when death comes knocking on my door. Who's going to save you? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for every man, boy, and girl listening that if they don't have a relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, help them to turn from their pride and the, and the foolish thought that they could save themselves and help them to realize you desire to have a relationship with them. You created them to be with you. Oh, and Father, help them to understand that their sin nature separates you from them. And just like it did me. But then, Father, remind them they can't earn their way. Nothing they can do can earn salvation. But that's why you sent your son to live that perfect life. And Father, for every man and woman who calls upon the name of the Lord, your word says they shall be saved. So Father, for those who mean business with you today, may you radically save them and transform their lives. May you bring them out of the pit. And may you show them the beautiful reality of being a follower of Christ. Father, I love that you extend this promise to everyone. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who places their faith and trust in you can have eternal life. And it begins today. That's my prayer. And Father, for those of us who love you and are following you, I pray that you would challenge our hearts with these four pillars of the faith and that we would be fully devoted to studying your word, to fellowship, to breaking of the bread, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, and to spend time in prayer. Oh, Father, help us to strengthen our relationship with you as we, in turn, let that relationship overflow to those around us. May you move on our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen.